Welcome back to the Alexander Schmidt Podcast, episode 027. This is Homer's Iliad, book 8, part 1. Last time we were talking about book 7, we illustrated a one-on-one combat between Hector and Aias the Greater. went favorably to Aias the Greater's uh, uh, advantage. It went towards Aias the Greater, it seemed like. He was dictating the action against Hector. However, the heralds from both the Achaeans and the Trojans, Adias and Talthybius, end up breaking up the fight because both men appear to be equal before the gods and because night is falling. And why does night end the battle? Well, for one, it's customary. And for two, because at night at that time, they didn't have huge spotlights and, or electricity, and so it could be very difficult to see. And therefore, if one defeated one in battle, it was a different sort of defeat and uh, more less of an honorable defeat, which will actually be brought up by Aias the Greater in his um, speech contest against Odysseus for the arms of Achilleus later on. Uh, Odysseus will be accused of slinking in the night in order to kill all his foes, and you'll see why he says that in Book 10 in the Dolinea. So, also we got to see the respective Trojan and Achaean camps. We saw that the Trojan camp is not doing so hot. Paris of Troy selfishly refuses to give back Helen of Sparta, of Argos, and um, uh, instead, selfishly, again, uh, offers to give back Menelaus' possessions. Obviously, there's a slap in the face of the Achaeans, and in council, Diomedes speaks up, voicing the will of the people, saying, absolutely not will we accept such a slap in the face, which shows not only that Diomedes speaks for the people, but that the people are reheartened, you might say, after being disheartened in Book 2. They're willing to fight, even though they're given an out, and so that's important to note. The next thing you note is that Nestor is speaking in council, which is good for Agamemnon, and Agamemnon is allowing Diomedes to speak up against um, the will of the Trojans, meaning that Agamemnon is letting the people speak through him and is listening to them and is starting to embody that which a good leader embodies. And you might say that conflict is bringing the best out of Agamemnon at this moment. Though he was immediately disheartened in, in book two, he's regained his composure with a little bit of experience. And so he's showing that he's maturing alongside of Diomedes. That brings me to my next point. Something mentioned earlier, or part of my hypothesis, part of the hypothesis of this course is that Odysseus is the human embodiment of Athena, and that he, like Athena, represents the stabilizing force of order, or rather, the force of wisdom to stabilize order, and that is why Athena, who represents wisdom, is the embodied form of the mind or will of Zeus, that's why she jumps out of his head, and Zeus is the principle of order, the entire order, which will be emphasized today at the beginning of book eight, um, by the fact that he can hold down a golden rope and all the gods can pull on it and he can pull all of them. which uh, and, and they will not pull him anywhere. He will pull them and sky or earth and sea. And what does that mean? Well, without him, there's what? Just chaos. Exactly. The primordial chaos. And that's also why earth and sea disappear. The distinctions between things, which is sort of what the Pope's modernists are attempting to do right now. So, so Odysseus represents the stabilizing fo force of the human intellect or wisdom, what Athena is embodied on earth. However, Athena, we know, also loves Diomedes. And in fact, in the Inferno, in Canto 26, Diomedes and Ulysses, he'll be called there, based on his Latin name, Odysseus, will share a dual-tipped flame. And so I spent a moment thinking about what it might mean to think that Diomedes and Odysseus, who often are paired together, will be paired together in the taking of the Palladium, they'll be paired together by legend also, in the um, getting Achilleus' son, Neoptolemus, to fight 
in the stories that surround the Trojan War that largely feature moments after Achilles' death when the Trojans or when the Achaeans truly have to rely on their cunning over simply their strength, suggesting that when strength runs short, then cunning will supply the rest. And so Diomedes, though he does speak well and is clever, represents a different aspect of Athena, which is this. I believe it, it, he represents the capacity to climb the dominance hierarchy rather than to maintain the stability of order in the dominance hierarchy. So what is it that we see Diomedes doing? Well, acquiring new abilities, the ability to see the god for, gods for a, a brief amount of time. And we see him not only starting to excel at battle at a level far beyond his peers, being able to actually directly attack gods, for example, um, but also, which means to, a flat, to, to, to master his own affect one might say, his own, uh, so Aphrodite represents sort of lust, or not simply lust, but also the, the human desire for reproduction in that system. And Ares represents aggression and the aggression system. And the Jungians represent this as the aggression being the shadow that a person has and the sort of lust being represented, at least in a man, by the anima figure. <clears throat> so it's a very common idea all throughout history. And so what Diomedes is doing by being able to attack these gods is he's integrating these capacities into himself and therefore ordering himself better so that he can rise. <clears throat> and so now he not only fights at another level and fights higher level champions, and in fact will try to fight Hector today and will nearly kill him. And so what he is showing, and he'll actually throw a spear that almost hits Hector, hits his charioteer, indicating that he is zoning in on his target, which is how one rises, by making smaller and smaller mistakes and error correcting each time in order to have a smaller and smaller spread as one aims towards the goal. And so you can use an archery analogy for that. The truly great master may not hit the very dead center of the bullseye every time, but the spread will be tiny and each shot will be very close. And that's what Diomedes is showing the capacity to do. And so Odysseus represents the capacity to maintain that order and to adapt to situations incredibly or as effectively as possible. But Diomedes shows the dual-natured aspect or the second aspect of being able to therefore climb a dominance hierarchy by virtue of this awareness and this error-correcting ability, which awareness or alertness uh, indicates. And alertness will be a major feature of the Achaean success. In fact, in book nine, when the Achaeans are, are very much dispirited, Nestor will go and take a look at the sentries, who are named for their sentinel nature, for their sensing nature, their seeing things, and he will note that they are very alert and that this means good things for the army. And so let's dive into book eight proper. It begins with an assembly of the gods where Zeus has assembled all gods to listen to him. And so what does he do? He says, It has now become expedient to me to ban you all from the battlefield because I now know what fate decrees, the fall of Troy. And since I best know the mind of fate or the will of fate, you might say that Zeus is the will of fate and is the will of fate and that he is the mind of fate and that he understands what fate's will is and also understands the way in which fate wishes to embody that will. And then often Athena will embody that will at the next level of abstraction down, and often Odysseus or some major champion will embody that down on the level of humans, making a direct line 
from the absolute will, as divine, uh, as uh, Dante would call it, down to the human relative contingent will, which actually creates a transcendent morality, by the way. And so back to the notion of a transcendent morality, Zeus says, And if any of you gods wish to go against my will, which is of course the will of fate, which is of course what is going to happen, remember this. Were I to drop a golden rope from me all the way down to the earth, and we had a divine tug of war, all of you, versus me, you couldn't budge me an inch. What does that mean? Well, if Zeus is the principle of order, no amount of conflict between all the gods amongst each other or against the fact of that order is going to make that order disappear. And you might even say that that's a difficulty that the postmodernists are running into too today. The fact that there is order and that competence is that which dictates it in almost every dominance hierarchy, well, no matter how much you argue, that's simply going to be true. You want your great teachers teaching students. You want fantastic surgeons doing surgery. You want very dutiful and conscientious nurses working on people's bodies and very conscientious and often scrupulous lawyers working on your legal documentation. The fact of the matter is, no matter, even if one believes that words can be used in any way, then that simply means that words aren't always used to describe the facts of the world. And not simply the facts of the world, but maybe the truths that have always existed that perhaps people can't um, define rigidly and finely because the concepts or the realities of things are far more detailed than words can possibly describe. If, if an image is worth a thousand words, then something real is worth infinite words, which we truly know. And so uh, nothing one can possibly do could possibly remove the existence of Zeus. And if you ever listen to, say, the work of Dr. Jordan B. Peterson, you'll hear that we have a common ancestor with the lobster from over a hundred million years ago, and that even lobsters are, have their moods governed by serotonin just as we do, which affects posture, for example. And that we share, and so if a, a dominant lobster wins, he gets a serotonin boost. If a, the, uh, the other lobster comes and, and the master slave dialectic playing out amongst lobsters loses, it loses some serotonin, and uh, its posture gets weak, and it won't fight for something like 20 minutes. And so we share a common ancestor with them, and so the dominance hierarchy is older than humans are. It's in, and Peterson even says it's older than trees, which is a good way to conceptualize something that's older than time, essentially, that will never stop existing. And that is what Zeus defends. And so... He says, were he, however, to pull from his end, which be, would be essentially if he abandoned his duty to fate, that it would throw everything into chaos. He would pull up all the gods and the earth and the sea. And what does that mean? He would pull everything into oblivion, into chaos, into indistinct, formless nothingness. Because without order, without some binding force, which gives structure to being, there can be no being. In fact, that's most likely why the duality of being and non-being actually exists, and the duality of absolute will and relative will. There must be something at all times consistent in order to see the fluctuations and demarcations of that which uh, is truly creative and moves. 
In fact, that's a common theme one often sees even in philosophy. Fundamental uh, divisions made like that, like form and matter in Aristotle. Uh, the world of the forms as well as the world uh, that is judged by the forms, our world for Plato, um, etc. Also, heaven and earth, of course, at the beginning of the Old Testament. So, uh, in, in order for anything to be, two things need to be, uh, apparently. And, in fact, I have some ideas on the Trinity, too, which I'll share during the... Well, actually, they're based on Dante's ideas, which I'll share during the Divine Comedy, which is that after one, then two, then three, when something happens a third time, then it sets a pattern, and that that's part of the aspect of the idea of the Trinity, that you know something is a one real thing when it's been done in action three times. And so... Uh, something embodied three times equals one concept. And it's interesting because one might ask, don't we make lists in threes most likely? It's like, yes, that's you illustrating often three instances of what is a thought. And what does that mean exactly? It means when you can list three instances of something happened that are connected in the same way, then you are revealing the existence of an underlying or overarching thought. Which is interesting because it means that thought actually does reveal itself through your experiences and through your awareness of what has happened in them. So if Zeus pulls, everything goes to chaos, and all the gods shudder in fear at this. And in fact, Athena, she's sullen at hearing this, and Hera, she's rather upset. But the gods indicate that they understand this and they assent to his will. However, Hera will try to contravene his will two times in this book, and several other times down the road. So, particularly between books 12 and 14. So, battle breaks out again, and Zeus busts out his golden scales. And so we'll see these golden scales again in book 16. But what this shows is that <sighs> during a battle, often it says that the war god rages on and favors no one, which means Ares is conflict. Anybody can die by chance. True. Well, Zeus represents the opposite tendency of this, that that team, that, that group of individuals who is best ordered in some day will be fated to win. And in fact, who's going to be fated to win this day? It's the Trojans. But why are they fated to win? Is it simply because they're better ordered? Not necessarily. It's because Achilleus has willed them to do better through Zeus, which might mean that the resentment of Achilleus has spread so far and has created such a rift and conflict in the Achaeans that now the Trojans actually have better unity than do the Achaeans. Even though the Achaeans seem to have new resolve to fight, and the Trojans likely have leftover resentment from Paris not giving back Helen yet again. And so it's a difficult situation to explain. However, today, for the first time, the Achaeans are going to lose. And so Agamemnon is going to have to deal with losing, and books 9 and 10 are going to be a major reaction against that when he sends an, ac when he sends an embassy to Achilleus. So if you've been wondering for Achilleus or wondering where he is, we'll see him again next book in the next couple lectures. And then if you've been wondering about whether any spying ever happens, people going out into the night, 007 style, with fewer martinis, well... We'll see that in Book 10 with Diomedes and Odysseus. And so the Achaean Death Day weighs heavier on the golden scales of Zeus. 
And so he crashes some thunder. And this is a portent indicating his will and indicating that he favors the Trojans. And the major Achaean champions, and it's interesting that they notice, suggesting that all of them are a little more alert than the enlisted men. Well, Idomeneus, the Iontes, they all scatter. And in fact, Odysseus is going to scatter too. And very interestingly, Diomedes calls to Odysseus, and Odysseus scatters while Diomedes stays, which perhaps indicates if we consider the duality uh, elucidated earlier, that the stability of the situation has broken down, but even though the stability is gone, the capacity to climb the dominance hierarchy uh, remains, but not for very long because Diomedes will get out of there. And so, Odysseus flies by Diomedes. So perhaps we won't judge Hector quite so harshly when we hear about him flying by Sarpedon or leaving his men on the pikes, or perhaps we will. And so, Nestor's horse is hit in the brains, and which is it's described as in the brains, by either an arrow or a spear by Alexandros. I can't recall exactly which. It was an arrow. And so the horse of Nestor goes down, and he cuts it off the rein. However, now he's stuck. He can't move. And Hector is coming in and wants to kill him. He understands what a big, major kill this will be to kill Nestor. And so Nestor needs help. And who's there to help him? It's Diomedes. Diomedes pulls him into his chariot. And it's Nestor's lucky day. And it's sort of a funny moment when Diomedes invites Nestor in because he's, he's sort of bragging to the old man. The first thing he mentions is, come see how good these Trojan horses know the plain. And so why does he have Trojan horses? Because recall, when he injured Aeneas, he had Sthenelus take Aeneas's really nice horses, which, remember, were bred from some immortal stock that were stolen from some of Priam's horses. And so he's got some really nice horses. So he's essentially like, hey, look at my ride, old man. And then the next thing is he... He seems to have been moved by Nestor's speeches about bravery because what he says is, come then, climb into my chariot. This is 105, uh, book 8, 105 to 111. What the Trojan horses are like, how they understand their plane and how to traverse it in rapid pursuit and withdrawal. Horses I took away from Aeneas, who strikes men to terror. Let the henchmen look after your horses now, while we two steer these against the Trojans' breaker of horses, so Hector even may know if my spear also rages in my hand's grip. So he's not going to retreat at all. He's actually going to take Nestor in to the fray and he's going to take aim immediately at Hector and he throws his spear at him but he strikes only the charioteer of Hector which is a common trope Eniopius is the name of uh, the, 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 the man with Hector and so uh, what does this mean exactly well when a, when a champion comes near to killing another champion this often means something along the lines of his aim is closing in and he is improving as a fighter uh, though sometimes it also indicates that he is having an off day if it happens over and over again as Pandaros suggests with his anger carried out at his bow which he he swears cut off my head if I don't break this bow uh, <laughs> which is kind of a funny thing to say and so the problem, though, is that Diomedes has attempted to kill Hector, has come very close, and now he doesn't realize that his luck is about to run out. So Zeus throws down a thunderbolt that, that throws up sulfur right near, right in front of the chariot of Diomedes. Nestor sees this as a clear sign to retreat. And one might understand this as Nestor sees a clear sign to retreat that Diomedes does not because Diomedes is young and trying to push his luck in this situation by fighting alone against Hector. 
when all the men are retreating. Nestor can see that this is, an, this is a disequilibrated state, that this is not going to work as a strategy. And so he says, son of Tidius, steer now to flight your single-footed horses. Can you not see that the power of Zeus no longer is with you? And so if Odysseus has left a situation which is the principle which maintains order, then the principle which attempts to climb that order is not going to have anything to climb and therefore needs to get out of there. And so Diomedes has got to bolt. And so Diomedes says, yeah, okay, I'll leave. Um, but gosh, I wish that worse than anything would be to hear Hector claim that I was running away from him out of fear. And so... And that, that's interesting because it shows that the Greek or the Achaean idea of immortality is what is said of one after one dies, which is very similar to uh, our idea, which is also why we, of course, have epitaphs on tombstones, which is to inscribe something on stone, which means eternally, essentially. Well, Nestor gives the best response ever. Ami, son of brave Tidius, 152 to 156, what a thing to have spoken. If Hector calls you a coward and a man of no strength, then the Trojans and Dardanians will never believe him, nor will the wives of the high-hearted Trojan warriors, they whose husbands you hurled in the dust in the pride of their manhood. Snap! Boom! Wow! Nestor really, uh, nail on the head right there. He says, for one, nobody on either side will believe that, for sure, and for two, definitely not the women who were the wives of the men you've killed, they won't believe that, not ever. No one can say anything about your name, Diomedes. Which is interesting because that's essentially wisdom speaking straight to Diomedes' heart, saying, you've done enough today. Let's go back for now. You have to keep fighting. Dying right now would do nothing to help your glory and everything to help his. And so, Diomedes turns to flight, to flight, not to fight, and Hector calls out in a great voice at him and claims that he'll never carry the women of Troy back with him home if he has a say in it, and well, he will not have a say in it, ultimately. And so, Hera then tries to rouse Poseidon, and this is such an interesting interlude because it's only a few lines long, and she, she tries to get Poseidon to intervene on behalf of the Achaeans, and he just straight up says no to her. Um... He essentially just affirms what Zeus said earlier, 208 to 211, he says, Hera, reckless of words, so similar to Thersites there and Eurylochus later in the Odyssey, what sort of thing have you spoken? I would not be willing that all the rest of us fight with Zeus, the son of Kronos, since he is so much the greater. And so if we're representing Poseidon, the embodiment of the order of Zeus on earth and sea, then it makes sense that he would remain consistent with Zeus, and it also makes sense that Hera would be able to communicate with him, since that's essentially her communicating with Zeus on a slightly different level. Perhaps she can understand him better in that way. Um, but Poseidon says, no. And so now we have a very interesting moment. Agamemnon then lines up on the middle ship of all the Achaeans. And who's in the middle of the ships? Well, the person who was in the middle of the catalog of ships, who has the sides of his ships painted red. That's Odysseus. So Agamemnon speaks from a place of intelligence, the middle of the pack, where Odysseus keeps his ship. It's not where the most reckless, because strongest men keep theirs. Aias the Greater, for one, who has his ships closest to the wall, besides Protoselaus, who's now dead, who was the first man who died at Troy, uh, near the wall of the Achaeans. Achilleus also has his ships on the other side, the uh, diametrically opposed side 
of the shore, indicating that they both are at the extremes and they're reckless because of their strength. But where's Odysseus? He's in the middle. What's the middle? It's the safest place. Where is it the safest place? For anything, essentially, except for in a fire, one might say, but within a zebra pack, safest from lions, and within a school of fish like cod, for example. The middle is the best place to be, and so Odysseus in the, is in the wisest possible place, and therefore when, when Agamemnon speaks in front of Odysseus' ship, he speaks from a wise place, and he speaks in a piercing cry, it says, and he reminds the men of their strength and the claims they've made and the good food they've been eating and the good wine they've had and, and all the sacrifice they've made for this time. And he says, let our men at least get clear and escape and let not the Achaeans be thus beaten down at the hands of the Trojans. And he spoke thus, and as he wept, the father took pity upon him and bent his head that the people should stay alive and not perish. Straightway he sent down the most lordly of birds, an eagle. So note that an eagle has always been a symbol for kingly authority, whether it be here, whether it be for uh, the Romans, whether it be for Justinian, represented as a Byzantine Roman in Dante, or whether it be the eagle of the United States. It's a symbol of maximal perspective and predatory ability and therefore power. So he sends down an eagle holding a fawn, the young of the running deer, caught in his talons, who cast down the fawn beside Zeus's splendid altar where the Achaeans wrought their devotions to Zeus of the voices. So what does this indicate? That Agamemnon has spoken with great emotion. He's spoken from the heart. And what has he done to the people? Well, he swayed the people. And not only the people, but Zeus, Zeus of the voices. What does Zeus of the voices mean? It means the leader's ability to listen to that or to give the people what they want in order to persuade them. The leader's ability to embody the voices of his people. It's essentially a democratic idea, and Zeus represents that too. So Agamemnon has completely hit a chord with his people in this moment. And so he is more and more embodying the ideal leader, and more and more doing this under adverse circumstances. So excellent work on his part. Unfortunately, it will not last because in, well, perhaps it will depend on how we interpret that in the moment because in book nine and book 10, it will seem as if he is getting more and more desperate, but perhaps that's because the situation is getting more and more desperate and he simply reflects it. Um, and so an interesting question would be, is it a duties leader not to reflect a desperate situation under desperate times? And I would say that Hector largely Hector often represents that situation with great nobility, though not at all times, because he, like Peter, right before the death of Jesus, messing up a few times, well, right before his own death, he will also show some elements of cowardice, and we'll have to really think about what that means, because it will be shocking to see what happens right before he fights Achilles. And so after the speech by Agamemnon, he, raises, he rouses nine Achaean champions to fight again. We see the, the theme of nine and champions, and it's several of the ones that we hope to see. So uh, it's the, both the Atreidae, Menelaus, and Agamemnon. Agamemnon has pumped himself up. The two Iontes, Edominius, and of course his henchman, Marianes, Eurypolis, Teucros as well, and uh, with uh, alongside Aias. And so Teucros is an archer who's the half-brother of Ias and is the bastard son of Telamon, and he has an interesting story. And in fact, after after Ias dies, uh, Teucris will be banished from his home um, in um, Sard in Salamis because actually his father will blame him for not keeping Ias alive, which is something that Teucris will actually bring up being afraid of 
in Sophocles' Ajax, which uh, we, we'll go over at some point. And so, Teucris is now going to have his Aristea. What is his Aristea? Well, he's going to shoot dead something like eight people. Um, uh, Orsilicus, or Ormenos, Ophelestes, Ditor, Chromius, Lycophontes, Lycophon um, Amopaeon, and Melanopos. Melanopus. And, um, well, essentially, Hector, if one has seen those old um, box fighting games in arcades and ever heard that automated voice that says combo breaker that's what Hector's going to do here he's going to put a real stop to Tucros's uh, killing and in fact it's going to be due to some avarice and fighting spirit of Tucros because Tucros is going to see his chance to take a shot at Hector and bravely attempt it but as he's pulling his bowstring back to his ear Hector has pulled up a rock and thrown it and hits takes Tucros in the collarbone but lucky Lucky for him, Ias the Greater is his half-brother and will defend him and help take him off the battlefield or defend him until he is taken off the battlefield because Ias is a major, major part of the Achaean front now and he has called the Wall of Achaeans for good reason. And so, sorry to end this episode on sort of an Empire Strikes Back uh, note with the bad guys, the Trojans, if you do identify them as the bad guys, in fact. Um, but... That's all we've got for part one of book eight. And so please listen, please share, please like, and please call in if you ever have any questions. And so have a wonderful day.